But unlike Sicily, where there were only two German divisions on the whole of, of the island when the Allies landed on the 10th of July, there's 19 in Italy, of which eight are in the southern part, kind of in around Rome or, or somewhere in the south of, of Italy, and which can very quickly be redirected to Salerno if you're not quick about it. Hello and welcome to this week's pod and it's James Holland on to talk about the Allies fighting in 1943 Italy. James joins to talk about his book The Savage Storm which tells the story of the campaign that came in the autumn after the capture of Sicily in the summer of 1943. Plenty of more great history to come including an SAS origins clash between the historians Gavin Mortimer and Tom Petch. I've got Vietnam and the Millet Massacre and my Great Commanders series continues with Gordon Corrigan and Gary Sheffield discussing Douglas Haig. Please share, subscribe, rate and review if you can. But until then, it's James Holland on World War II Italy. James Holland, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much for joining me. We're here to talk about your new book, The Savage Storm, The Battle for Italy, 1943. Oh, well, thank you very much for having me back on. A pleasure, a pleasure. And so I've been reading through this book. I, I'm, I, I should declare I do have a personal interest because my grandfather fought, I think, 1944. So hopefully talk about whether you're going to get to that. But but let's get on with the battle for 1943. And my first question really was, where are we? I, I know your previous book, but one, um, or but two, actually, I think, is is was Sicily, 1943. Yeah. You're a prolific author, of course. But this is the Allies' invasion of the boot from the bottom. Exactly. So the original, the original plan with this. So, so years and years and years ago, I wrote, I wrote Italy Sorrow, which was the kind of sort of last, you know, that was sort of the last bit of the war, the last year of the war, which sort of, you know, I think north of Rome and the Gothic Line and all that kind of stuff, and the final victory. Then I'd written um, Sicily forty three, which you just mentioned, and then. So the gap, the bit that I hadn't written about were, was September 1943, when the Allies invaded um, southern Italy, through to all the casino battles. And so the original conceit was to do, to do, you know, do one book to cover all that. But I really got into it and I realised that, that the stories of 1943 really sets up casino. It doesn't really, casino doesn't really make a huge amount of sense. It doesn't make a huge amount of sense anyway, but it certainly doesn't make a huge amount of sense without that kind of background. And, and traditionally... You know, in history, say all those battles, whether it be Salerno or you know crossing the Volturno or what's going on on the Adriatic coast and on the Bernhard Line or the Winter Line, as the Americans called it, all that stuff has been sort of sort of brushed over pretty quickly. To be honest, you know, it's sort of given pretty sort of scant regard. Um, and as I was writing, I just felt it deserved a bit more. And and one of the problems I have, which is sort of um, so I, I sort of get hoisted by my own petard to a certain extent is that the way I do these books is I like to follow a really, really distinct cast of characters to illustrate the human drama of of, of what's going on. And other people do, do it differently. Uh, and what a lot of people do is is they illustrate the human experience of war with, you know, a, a pithy one-liner from someone, but you never meet him again. Or, or perhaps you do, but not till page 287 or something. Whereas I have this cast list, and, and, and the idea is that you follow them all the way through for as long as they're they're, they're part of the story. And that way, it's kind of easier to empathise with people. Um, and I got this, you know, I got this idea from, you know, when I was first starting out from reading kind of, you know, likes of Richard Collier and, and Lapierre and Collins and, you know, he wrote his Paris Burning and 
and, and of course, Cornelius Ryan. And then there was an amazing book that came out in 1999 called Finest Hour, which accompanied a BBC TV series. It was all about 1940. And they they followed this trick of having this very distinct cast list. And I remember thinking, oh, that's the way to do it, because you really get involved with these characters' lives and you want to know what happens to them and everything. So that's why I've done it. But the problem is that takes up quite a lot of space. It takes up quite a lot of word count. And um, and so what I found was, was that I was started to hurry through it and 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 rush the book and I didn't feel I was giving these incredible characters that, that I've been lucky enough to assemble I wasn't giving them enough breathing space uh, and I also realized that there was a very obvious narrative arc um stylistically from the invasion of southern Italy through to the end of the year because that's the bit that no one ever covers so you you know what everyone usually starts with is January 1944 with a kind of you know a couple of pages on Salerno or something so it kind of lent itself to two books rather than one. Um, and so The Savage Storm just covers 1943 rather than going all the way to the fall of Rome. Um, and the next one I'm going to be doing is is Casino 44. And that's obviously going to be doing Anzio and Casino and the Rapido and the fall of Rome and all this. So if we go to August, September 43, Sicily's held. The Germans know the Allies are coming, presumably. They're not completely stupid. And on the early page of your book, uh, one of the early pages, you show the um, the topography, the terrain of mm. Italy. And when I look at that, I always immediately think of Churchill's soft underbelly remark um, yeah. about, about and nothing could be further from the truth. So th- this just looks like a, an almost impossible task. Well, and, I mean, I mean, I mean obviously you, it didn't you know... prove to be that. Yeah, well, well, Churchill's Churchill's comment needs a little bit of contextualising because what he meant by the soft underbelly is not crossing at the Pas de Calais, which is the strongest part of the Atlantic Wall, um, uh, you know, or, or sort of going to the Eastern Front. You know, what he what he said, what what you know, and that that line comes from 1942 when he's trying to persuade the Americans to join in in the Mediterranean and go for torch rather than go for a cross-channel invasion in 1942 or early 1943, which is the original original plan when the Americans get to get to Britain in early part of 1942. So, you know, I don't think I don't think Churchill was ever assuming that it would be easy. I think what he what he meant was, you know, that's really the Italians domain. They're an easier enemy than the Germans. And yes, the Germans are in North Africa, but not in any great numbers and certainly not in the numbers that you'd have to face if you were going to attack them across the channel in 1942 or 43. Um, and so therefore it is, you know, it is a bit of an underbelly to a softer underbelly to, to the Third Reich. But but yes, you're absolutely right. And I mean, the interesting thing is, is that the, uh, the you know, Sicily is agreed upon at the Casablanca conference in, in January 1943, which is between British and American chiefs of staff and obviously Churchill and Roosevelt, who's the president of the USA and Churchill being the prime minister. Um, but then it's the Trident, Trident um, conference, which is the next one, which is in May 1943. And that's in Washington. And that's where it's agreed that, come what may, the priority is going to be Operation Overlord, the cross-channel invasion, which at that time is set tentatively for the 1st of May 1944. And, and an acceleration of operations in the Pacific, which had never originally been the plan when they first started talking about this in December 1941. You know, the idea was kind of Germany first, then Japan. And, and Britain took that to mean absolutely Germany first and, and you know you just hold the Japanese at bay and then you turn to Japan not kind of running them concurrently which is what the Americans were thinking uh, and what they absolutely insisted on by by this by by May 1943 so at this point there's no planning at all for an invasion of Italy it's kind of 
that's not the priority. Now, Italy is mooted and it's suggested and, and, and it is agreed that various plans will be looked into. And those plans include going into Sardinia and Corsica, a kind of just a very sort of faint foray into um, into the very boot of Italy, primarily to, to try and encourage Italy out of the war, which looks set to happen. But, but also, if Italy does get out of the war, then all those areas that are garrisoned by Italian troops will have to be garrisoned by German troops. All the Germans will have to give them up as well. Um, and, and that's quite a tasty proposition from an overlord point of view, because you're going to be drawing troops away from the Western Front and indeed also the Eastern Front. I mean, there's some 32 divisions in in, in the Balkans and Italy and, and, and the Aegean. You know, 32 divisions is a lot. And, and divisions, I should just say, about, you know, if you think about 15,000 men, that's about right. And um, give or take a little bit. And divisions are very much the kind of unit by which we judge the scale of armies in the Second World War. So 32 divisions is a lot. And uh, particularly when you think that when Rommel first went to North Africa, you know, he went with two and then subsequently three in the Africa Corps. So that gives it some kind of perspective and scale of it. And when you think that, that Britain never had more than 49 infantry divisions in the entire Second World War. So, you know, 32 is a lot, plus air forces, plus naval forces and all the rest of it. And the Germans are going to have to kind of cover that off themselves or abandon it. So there's very good reasons for going into Italy. And Churchill is chomping at a bit. He wants to get to Rome because, you know, his mind is always on history. And Rome is the kind of, you know, it's ancient Rome as well as modern Rome uh, and a huge psychological victory, he thinks. And, he, you know, he says, says, you know, why crawl up the up the leg from the ankle like a harvest bug? You know, much better to go in at the strike at the knee. And, you know, and he's got a point. But actually, Rome is the kind of least important of, of the reasons for going into Italy. And what actually persuades the Americans for it is, is, again, it goes back to Operation Overlord, because what they're concerned about is not being able to destroy enough of the Luftwaffe to control large swathes of northwest Europe when they go and launch Operation Overlord the following year, the cross-channel invasion. And the reason you want to do that is because the moment that you land in Normandy, the cat is out of the bag. And then it's a race to which side can build up troops the most to a decisive level. And obviously the Allies are going to have overwhelming numbers, but they're going to be back in the UK and they've got to get across the channel and across the seas and stuff of limited amounts of shipping, vast amounts of shipping, but still limited to what they would ideally like. Whereas the Germans are already on the continent. So the way you slow down the Germans is by destroy by, by by destroying all the bridges and marshalling yards and, and railway lines and all the rest of it. But the only way you can do that is by bombing at very low level. And that requires medium bombers, twin engine bombers and fighter bombers and stuff to do this low level operations. But you can't do that if you've got the skies full of Messerschmitts and Fokker Wolves. So you then have to destroy a vast part of the Luftwaffe before you can even attempt that. And, and, and clearing those skies is an absolute prerequisite for Operation Overlord. So... How do you destroy the Luftwaffe? Well, you go and attack the aircraft factories, but the aircraft factories are not in the Ruhr, in the western part uh, of Germany, like the industrial heartland. They're down in the south and in Austria and, you know, in, in southern Germany and Bavaria and Wiener Neustadt and Augsburg and these kind of places. And the problem is, is that that's beyond the range of fighter escort for the bombers. And every time they try it, they try and send bombers um, in, in daylight to hit these targets without fighter escorts. They get absolutely massacred. And they actually, the, one of the big massacres is on the 17th of August, which is the very same day that the Allies captured Sicily, 1943. You know, 315 heavy American bombers go out to, to, to hit um, Schweinfurt and Regensburg. 
uh, and they get absolutely hammered and 60 of them are shot down and a further 120 are really badly damaged and, and and so on and you know this is these are unsustainable losses so how do you get around this problem well one of the reasons ways you get around this problem is by tightening the noose from and, and bombing from a different part of the world and that different part of the world is italy and, and at Foggia, which is about a third of the way up the leg on the Adriatic coast, there's a very rare bit of flat ground in Italy. And you can have loads of airfields there. And um, and you can put heavy bombers in there, you know, four engine strategic bombers, you know, liberators and B-17 fire fortresses and all the rest of it. And from there, they can attack Puesti in Romania, which is the Germans' only source of real, real oil and fuel, but also... Wiener Neustadt and uh, and Augsburg and those uh, those factories in in southern Austria. So suddenly there is this very pressing um, extra reason for going into Italy, and that's what makes the Allied chiefs of staff convinced that rather than just a little sort of foray into Sardinia and into the toe, that actually they should do exactly as as um, Churchill suggests and strike at the knee. And striking at the knee means going in around you know somewhere around Naples, but you still need air cover when you're doing an operation like that. So the closest they can get is the big long beaches south of Salerno, which is about, you know, 20 miles south of, of, of in turn, south of, of um, or 30 miles south of, of Naples. And that's how this escalates. But the problem is they don't have enough shipping by this stage to be able to do what they want to do on the scale that they need to do to, to absolutely guarantee success and and therein lies the whole problem of the italian campaign it's 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 kind of there's very good strategic reasons for doing it but the allies don't quite have the the support that that such a campaign is is requires and that's that's the heart of it and the heart of it goes back to shipping because although you know us is, is that landing are, craft or yeah this talking... is a sort craft but it's also combat loaders so this is troop ships and and, and so on but it's primarily assault craft so landing craft you know landing ships landing craft tanks landing craft infantry all these kind of things you know there's different scales there's higgins boat which is a you know the classic omaha beach one the small one with just a sort of platoon of men but then there's a kind of 50 meter long um landing craft tank and infantry and then there's a landing ship which are the big boys and they're kind of 120 meters you know they're, they're, they're bigger than a destroyer and they're you know they can take serious amount of, of supplies and they can just land straight on a beach you don't need a port for them or anything you can just go straight there but the problem is although they've got lots of them obviously if you're accelerating operations in the pacific you need a lot of landing craft uh, they they absolutely you know all those sort of attacks on atolls in the middle of you know the marshall islands the gilbert islands and all these kind of stuff they all require huge amounts of shipping you know because the pacific is necessarily an amphibious campaign and then you need to kind of train for overlord and 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 all these these landing craft that have been involved in 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 operation husky the invasion of sicily and there's been 1743 of them they're being used every single day they're not just being used for the day of the of the launch of the invasion they use all the time. They keep beetling back and forth, and and every time you hit the beach, of course, you're 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 clanging the, the 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 landing craft against the ground and against the edge of the shore and all the rest of it, and it takes its toll. And all this stuff, you know, they need servicing and they need overhauling, and you know, they need time in the dockyards and all the rest of it. So what that means is is that for Italy, there is really seriously limited amounts of assault shipping available. You know, there's 268 for Operation Baytown, which is the planned little foray across the Straits of Messina, which are only a couple of miles wide between Sicily and the and the toe. And that means the maximum force you can send over is two divisions, which is kind of not really enough. 
And then for Avalanche, Operation Avalanche, which is going to be the main event, which is going to happen six days later on the 9th of September, 1943, they've only got 359. And 359 might sound like quite a lot, but it just isn't. It means they can only land three divisions in the initial wave, one more kind of hovering out at sea, and a few special forces to secure secure some passes. But but unlike Sicily, where there were only two, division, two German divisions on the whole of, of the island when the Allies landed on the 10th of July... There's 19 in Italy, of which eight are in the southern part, kind of in around Rome or, or somewhere in the south of, of, of Italy, and which can very quickly be redirected to Salerno if you're not quick about it. And Salerno is, is this great amphibious operation that, well, it's not an unmitigated disaster. They get a they get a foothold, don't they? Oh, my God. Salerno's an amazing success against all the odds because, as I say, you know, they're, they're just not landing enough troops to, to, to be confident. They're up against the 16th Panzer Division directly in front of them. The terrain is an absolute horror story because you've got this this sort of half moon of 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 flat ground but it's completely surrounded by hills and of course you know from a german point of view on those hills you know he who has the high ground controls the battle space and so and the reason for that is because you can put observers on the high ground you can see everything on the low ground and and the germans with their zeiss icon binoculars and all the rest of it can direct as much artillery fire as they like straight onto the invasion and as i'm saying you know the americans of the american fifth army under under general mark clark which is landing at, at, at Salerno. This is Operation Avalanche on the 9th of September, 1943. Um, he just doesn't have enough to guarantee success at all. So what they've done is they've given him quite a lot of warships. But again, you know, like 242 or something for for um, for, for, for Husky and 70 for Avalanche. You know, these are completely different scales. And they're trying to kind of give them as much air support as they possibly can. But it doesn't alter the fact that you still have to get boots on the ground. They've got to get onto the beaches, get the high ground, turf off the Germans, hold it, and hope that enough supplies can come in before the Germans counterattack in force. And it's a really, really close-run thing. I mean, it's 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 actually brilliantly handled. But but the fault is is not the guys on the ground or the commanders for, for any kind of uh, a moment of of anxiety and worry about whether they're going to be kicked out of the sea. It is is entirely the chiefs of staff, the combined chiefs of staff, and not supporting a really major operation with enough uh, enough assault shipping. Well, you've you've mentioned Clark there and and well, the, the staff. The Supreme Commander is I don't, I've probably got not got the right term for him for for General Alexander. No, he's the he's the army group commander and the Supreme Allied Commander is Eisenhower still. Well, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah, so the army group commander is Alexander. So Alexander, he's got, he's got Fifth Army, U.S. Fifth Army, which has lots of British troops in it, but is under Mark Clark, and that's ostensibly American. And then you've got Eighth Army, which has you know Canadians and New Zealanders and Indians and, and all sorts, as well as British, um, under Montgomery. Yes. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about Alexander because he often gets ignored when talking about commanders you know, during World War Two. We know a lot about Slim. Oh, the podcast yeah, yeah. is a huge fan of Slim's. And then, um, uh, and then, of course, Monty. But Alexander, I, I've I always hold a little bit of a flame for him. Yeah, me too. I'm a big fan. I, I think he's absolutely terrific. He's a he's a he's a master. Really, he doesn't really sort of get gets all the big decisions right. I would say, and and you know, he plays a pretty steady hand. You know, he's incredibly charming. He's a man completely devoid of personal ambition. You know, his ambition is just to do his duty and and do the right thing. You know, which is very laudable. I think. You know, he speaks something like seven languages. Um, he's the most experienced combat experienced 
um, commander on any side in the Second World War. He had a very successful First World War, didn't he? He absolutely did. Yeah, he's commanded troops in battle at every stage of the rank uh, of every rank. Um, he's also the only um, commander to commanded both sides effectively because he commands German troops of the Baltic Landwehr in the in the Russian Civil War in 19, 19, 1920, when he set up there uh, up to the Baltic states. So you know he's he's hugely experienced. Um, and he's a very, very sort of deft hand. You know, he's the last man out. He's the, literally the last British soldier still standing to leave Dunkirk um, in in beginning of June 1940. He oversees a retreat of the Burma force from Burma into uh, across the Irrawaddy into into India, northeast India, in um, May 1942. Uh, then takes over um, as commander in chief of the Middle East in in. Um, in North Africa and says, right, no more reverses whatsoever. That's We will never have a reverse. We're just going to make sure we front load everything so that we can win. And that that absolutely is the case. Um, when he's brought in to be um, army group commander in Tunisia, he um, absolutely just grips the show immediately and, and turns around the fortunes in a matter of, you know, 10 days. Everyone loves him. All the Americans love him. You know, every, every, everyone likes him. He's just consummately charming and, and, he's and always well turned out, isn't he? Very well turned out. Yeah, he believes in in kind of a, you know a general should look kind of spick and span. Um, doesn't go with this sort of slouchy look. But you know that's I don't think he would judge you know Monty for example or someone else for not look, looking like him. But but that's just his the way he's brought up. Um, you know he's a really really amazing guy. And and the the reason he doesn't get the press he he, he often gets is because. He, a, he had gargantuan amounts of responsibility, and it's very easy when things don't go 100% right to kind of sort of point the finger at the army group commander because ultimately, you know, he's in command. Um, but but um, I think also because, you know, he wasn't a man who blew his own trumpet. You know, he wasn't, a, he, he didn't keep a diary. Um, he, he, you know, he didn't sit around sort of courting the press or anything like that. So, you know, these people sort of go a little bit under the radar, but but but, you know, more power to him for that, frankly. Well, I'm I'm just loving him more and more now. Um, yeah, he's great. He's absolutely great. He's a uh, actually. I've funny enough. I've 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 got a commission from from about ten years ago to do the authorized biography of him. I'll tell you one little story actually, because I've I've been in touch with his sons and got a whole load of material. I've got loads and loads of material on Alex, but some of them are his letters that he sent back to his sons um, during the war, and his sons were you know sort of under ten at this point. And they're all illustrated with lovely little. He was quite. He was a very, very good artist as well, and um, they're all illustrated with little cartoons and pictures and, and and all the rest of it. And there's one time which is, you know, he's he's writing, and I think it's March 1944. So this is the height of the casino battles, and he says, you know, um, how are you, children? I've been wondering. It might be nice to have a, the pitter patter of a little baby about the place, um, but please tell mummy not to do anything until I get home. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so charming, you know. It's just so funny and and just. You know, yeah. I would love to have met him. I mean, I really, yeah. really, really, really would have done. And and you know, his judgment is pretty good. You know, he he, you know, certainly in 1943, you you can't really fault him. I mean, you know, the the the, the difficulties that they run into in the internal campaign are, are not of his own making. They're all to do with supply issues, um, and the supply issues are really at the fault of of the combined chiefs of staff. And it's interesting because General Marshall, who's the um, uh, chief of staff of the um, of the U.S. Armed Forces. You know, he says that he says at um at the Trident Conference of May 1943, he says once undertaken, an operation must be backed to the limit. Mm. And what he's talking about, of course, is Overlord. 
but 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 it equally applies to Italy, and and they they are not backing their own mantra. Well, one thing that comes across in the book is is your empathy for the infantrymen, and on both sides, really. I mean, oh well, yes, and the civilians, I'd say as well. Yeah, but I mean, with these lack of resources, it just makes the job doubly hard. And then on the German side, they are their motivation for fighting. At some point, I remember reading in the book, it's speculating on their motivation, really, which, I mean, it's it's clear that totalitarian regime, they're going to be treated more harshly than the Allied army if if they're not as keen as they should be. Yeah, that's definitely true. But by the same token, you know, morale still is important. And it's interesting, you know, I mean, and I think by this point, you know, Second half of 1943, the Germans know that they're kind of sort of massively up against it. You know, we've had the Goebbels Sports Palace speech about, you know, are you ready for total war and all this kind of stuff. And they've also, you know, they're seeing the levels of destruction in Italy and they're thinking, is this what's going to happen to Germany if we're not careful? So one of the guys I follow is a a guy called Jörg Zellner, who's a battalion commander in the 44th Hocken Deutschmeister Division, which is an infantry division. And his di- his diaries are just incredible because you know he talks a lot about oh, this war is so crazy, it's so mad, it's so pointless, it's so ridiculous. Why are we doing this? We're all going to die. It's all awful. And then, but but the next minute he's sort of trying to justify why he's still fighting, and, and he says we don't have any choice. You know what 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 is the alternative? You know I've got family back home. I've got to try and protect them. You know I can't do anything but fight. That is all all we have left because otherwise Germany is going to become what Italy's become. And it's he's full of kind of sort of angst and anxiety and worry and heartbreak and heartache and all those sort of things and and you know it's 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 hard not to be moved by it to be perfectly honest you know it's what, really it's really very affecting. Well, what were the kind of casualties that were being? Well, they're absolutely terrible. I mean, you know, the thing is, these Allied armies that you know they've got you know and also the German armies to a slightly lesser extent, you know they. There's a lot of them over there because, you know, you need supply troops and maintenance troops and, you know, service troops and all this kind of stuff. The number of actual infantry is is in the big scheme, you know, actual fighting riflemen is, is, is comparatively small in the big scheme of things. But the burden on them is absolutely huge because... The Allied way of war by 1943 is to use air power and, and firepower and mechanisation to do a lot of the hard yards for you so that you don't have to use... You know, you know, get yourself in a situation where you're having a sort of massive slaughter like you did in the First World War. Uh, um, you know, they're trying to sort of resist the urge to be very infantry heavy. But the trouble in Italy is, at the beginning of October, it starts to rain, and it rains every, you know, fifty percent of the time for the rest of the year. Uh, and the roads in Italy are, are, you know, the population is about forty million, and most of the most of the populated areas are in the valleys, rather than high up in the mountains. Not exclusively so, but mostly. And and the roads going through it are just, you know, they're just not designed for. You know, there's mostly Strada Bianca, which are these sort of sort of dirt roads. And, you know, they're designed for, you know, the occasional Fiat futting past or, 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 or you know, a mule and a cart. You know, they're not designed for 3,000 vehicles of an infantry division. And from a German point of view, they're very easy to destroy as they're retreating. You know, every bridge, every kind of, you know, culvert, every kind of cliff pass mountain pass or whatever you just blow it up and and the only way around that is to get engineers in with bailey bridges and and you know scaffolding and you know all the rest of it and, and build another one in, in breakneck speed time 
But of course, that is also taking up a logistical burden as well. And the net result of all this is that the, mecha the huge mechanization of the Allies is struggling and the limited road system and, and the demolitions of the Germans and the mud. So uh, and the Germans are on the high ground, have to be priced off the high ground because for the same reason that Salerno, you know, he who has the, 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 the high ground controls the battle space. And it's infantry who just having to go up on foot or with the help of mules, which they're not trained to use. That's how they do it. And, and it's just a huge level of expectation is put upon these men who haven't been trained in that particular type of warfare. Uh, and they've just got to slog their guts up it through the rain, through the mud, through the misery. And of course, mountain warfare is particularly brutal because the soil is very thin. And where the soil is very thin, any shelling gets exaggerated in its, in its destructive effect because you've got more shrapnel going everywhere. And if a shell lands on the beaches at Dunkirk, it's, it can bury itself in the sand and doesn't cause that much damage in the big scheme of things. Whereas, you know, on an open mountainside, you're getting the shrapnel effect, but you're also getting the effects of, of the effect of splinters of, you know, razor sharp splinters of rock. So it's a, it's just an absolute horror story, and really that they get to they they get through this incredibly strong defensive position of the Bernhard Line or Winter Line as it's known, um, uh, which is about sort of eighty miles south of Rome. Um, by the end of December, is is pretty impressive, really, when you consider the terrain and the conditions and the kind of limitations on on what's going on. Because all the time that the the, the Allied armies are are trying to push their way north. The Allies are also building up the strategic air forces in the around Foggia and all those airfields that they're building there. I mean, you know, by the 25th of November 1943, the Americans have constructed a, a, a gas pipeline that can take 160,000 uh, um, 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 gallons of high-octane fuel every single day and take it 25 miles from the coast to Foggia. I mean, that's an amazing engineering feat. But again, all that stuff is having to happen at a at a cost you know what you're finding is that the air forces are are basically pitted against the the ground forces in competition for shipping space and 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 trucking space and all the rest of it and to make matters worse for the armies the allies decide to increase the size of what's going to become the 15th air force strategic air force from six bomb groups which is you know three bomb squadrons to 21 and and you know that that's not necessarily the wrong decision it's just there is a price to pay for this and you know you can't have everything and, and the truth of the matter is is the allies are in a hurry you know overlord overlord has the primacy so so this is a secondary theater to overlord even though overlord hasn't happened at this time and and it says you know it's a support campaign effectively but but the allies are in a hurry they want to win the war they want to get it over and done with and so they're always constantly trying to do more than they've got the equipment to do even though they've got vast equipment by you know compared with say the germans for example well i just wanted to ask about the german commander actually because we've spoken about alexander but kesselring is i guess his counterpart in italy mm. but i mean i know reading reading the book you, you're not as impressed by him as many are no i think he's pretty awful I, I mean, I've I've written I've spent a lot of time on Kesselring over the years. I mean, he just crops up like a bad penny in all the books I seem to be writing. And um, the the thing is, he's got so so. The original plan for the Germans is is to is is to you know should the Italians bug out of the war, which of course they then do, um, is to overwhelm all the all the Italian armed forces, snap them all up, send them back to Germany as slave labour, and and garrison the areas that the Italians have vacated themselves. So the priorities for that, but but 
they're also conscious that that's going to take up a huge amount of resources and manpower. Uh, and it is Rommel who is appointed Army Group B commander by Hitler. And, and his role is to defend Italy. And the plan, as put forward by, by Rommel and, and sanctioned by Hitler in the summer of 1943, is to retreat to a, a line running across the Apennines, which uh, across the mountains, across the leg of Italy, um, between Pisa on the Tyrrhenian coast, on the western coast, and, and Rimini on the Adriatic eastern coast. And this is the point where the mountains basically touch both sides. And it's the only place in, in Italy where that, that happens. And that's about 200 miles north of, of Rome. And Rommel's reasoning for this is because he's experienced Allied air power. And and he he knows that, the, and he's also been caught short by having overextended supply lines, you know, which is exactly how he came a cropper in North Africa, by having two long supply lines when he was trying to batter his way in through the Alamein line to get to kind of into Egypt, in, into Alexandria and Cairo and so on, back in the summer of 1942. So he's got form on this and he, know, he knows what he's talking about. And his point is that the, the Pisa-Rimini line, that's a much stronger, that's the strongest natural de defensive position in the whole of Italy, uh, which it is. Um, and, and also it means you've got shorter supply lines coming from the southern right through the Brenner Pass and through the Alps in the in the South Tyrol. And this is a very good good idea and, and, and Hitler agrees with this and gives him the bulk of the divisions that have been poured into Italy at that time. Whereas Kasserring is told to just sort of hang in there for the moment, you know, having having been the overall commander in um, commander of German forces in the Mediterranean during the Sicily campaign. But Kasserring thinks, well, no, that's crazy. We should we should we should defend the whole of southern Italy. So he's absolutely determined that should the Allies attack, he's going to defend and kick them back into the sea. So when the allies when the allies um cross the um, Straits of Messina with just a couple of divisions in in the third of September 1943, you know he's only got a skeleton force there in the very toe of the boot, which is the 29th Panzer Grenadier Division, and they're just basically doing demolitions and blowing up bridges and culverts and mountain passes and stuff. Um, and what he decides is that he's pretty sure that the allies are going to land somewhere further up the leg, um, uh, and he's right about that, but he's not quite sure where. And so he's slightly hedging his bets, but he's determined that once they do land and show their hand, that he's going to counterattack with full force. And what happens is he overwhelms um, um, the resistance in Rome by this, you know, D plus one, which is the 10th of September, the day after the, the, the avalanche landings at Salerno. And so he sends the bulk of his forces down towards Salerno. So suddenly you've got got six divisions plus elements of the seventh, which is the first Faustenjäger division, which is ostensibly holding the whole of the southeast of of Italy, the the heel of the boot, which is part you know known as Apulia, and um, even divisions, even units from the first Faustenjäger division are hurried over to Salerno. And the idea is to is to kick the Allies back into the sea at Salerno, then turn back and deal with um, Eighth Army with overwhelming force and tidy up the whole thing and and, and reconquer the whole of southern Italy. But one of Kessering's fatal, fatal flaws is his over optimism. You know, he thinks that's that's viable and that that's possible. And so he chucks all his eggs in one basket at Salerno and it fails. It doesn't work. You know, it's a catastrophe for 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 for, for Kessering and it's a catastrophe for the Germans because because as a result of that, they've taken their eye off the ball and the Allies have actually they need assault shipping to get into Taranto, where which is an intact port. And so they just land troops straight in there. And the Fauschenjäger division are not strong enough to do anything more than just do a few rear guards and a few demolitions. And what that means is that that Kessering is forced to abandon uh, the Salerno bridgehead on the 17th of September. And 10 days later, 
the whole Foggia airfield complex falls to the Allies. Now, that's the single most important bit of real estate in the whole of southern Italy. So once you've lost that, there's no point in continuing to fight south of Rome. I mean, apart from the psychological value of having Rome, but 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 that is outweighed by the necessity of, of, of building up your strength and getting up to the north of Italy as quickly as possible, albeit with, with rear guards and holding up the allies as much as you possibly can but 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 fighting a really long aggressive attritional war south of rome makes no sense whatsoever the problem is 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 hitler's been quite impressed by what kassering has done kicks rommel off from italy over to normandy and says to says to kassering okay right yeah you know i want you to now fight for every yard and if there's one thing that any german general should fear it's a hitlerian spotlight being on them because their room for maneuver is completely lost and what and the only way that that Kesselring can keep hold of the winter line, the, the the Bernhard line, and the subsequent Gustav line, which is just behind it, it's like a sort of double lock system of defensive system of defensive walls going across the, the 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 entire leg south of Rome. The only way he can do that is by constantly filling gaps and firefighting with his units, which means splitting up his divisions left, right, and centre, and actually even. Um, splitting up up regiments which are you know three battalions of infantry you know it's what we would call a brigade over here um and, and so shifting them into penny packets and when you do that you just lose all cohesion you you lose unit cohesion um, morale takes a massive dip all those sort of things uh, it, and it's a it's a disaster um and as i say for kind of very limited benefit really in the big scheme of things well, I mean, and also, had, had they made the Gothic line stronger and, and poured all their resources into that, they probably could have held it indefinitely. We should also mention, I mean, the behaviour of the German troops as well. There's a, a horrific story of the village of, I think it was Valorantonda. Yeah, Valorantonda, yeah. I mean, because Kessering ultimately ends up in Nuremberg and is convicted and escapes death, doesn't he? But yeah. uh yeah, he was he was just not a you know, he was very lucky because he was, you know, he was He's kind of called a good German. I know, and smiling a, a, a Albert good and all German. this kind of stuff. And it kind of masks quite you know, he's a he's a it's a very sinister uh um side to him. You know, I mean the the number of civilian massacres in Italy on his watch are are you know, they're legion. I mean, really, really, really bad. And also don't forget, you know, he's a Luftwaffe field marshal, he's not a ground force commander and and it's very clear that a lot of the, the senior commanders, army commanders in, in Italy have no time for him whatsoever. You know, that's that's also not a good situation to be in. You know, they sort of mistrust him and stuff. You know, his judgment just isn't very good, is 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 the bottom line. Um mm. and he's a you know, he's a he's a ruthless so and so. Well, I I also want to ask you, because during this time, I, I forget the exact date, but you have the Tehran conference. Yes. St Stalin's chomping at the bit, isn't he? Because he wants the Allies to do a lot more. Yeah. Is he in, in any way impressed by the uh, campaign in Italy? Well, he's no, he's not he's not unimpressed by it, but he says you, you know the priority has to be overlord. That's his priority, and what he what he also suggests to them is that they need a two fisted attack, that they need to fight across the um across the channel, but also do a landing in southern France, you know, concurrently. And this is something that the Allies hadn't really considered, but 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 they then subsequently agreed to, and that that also has very big ramifications for the Italian campaign. Because most of those troops that are going to land in what will become known as Operation Dragoon in the middle of August 1944 um, have to come from Italy. Um, and, you know, I'm sort of fast forwarding here because it's not not in this book or indeed not even going to be in Casino either. Um, but 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 having taken Rome on the 4th of June, 
finally ca captured Rome on the 4th of June, they have this sort of momentum with them. You know, the German 14th Army has largely been destroyed and the German 10th Army has been very, very badly mauled. And, and there's absolutely no question that, that they could have got through the Gothic line that summer, which is the Pisa Rimini line. Um, but at that crucial moment, just as they're kind of, you know, got the winds in their sail and, and, and they've got momentum, they have to pause and seven of their divisions have to be taken out of the line. Um, to go to Dragoon, including the French ones, who are the kind of best best trained troops for mountain warfare. So, you know, I'm not saying it's the it's the right decision or the wrong decision, but 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 Italy is always playing second fiddle to Overlord and to the main effort, which is 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 defeating France and getting to the bulk of getting into Western Germany as quickly as possible. I suppose. I mean, it always plays second fiddle historically, really, doesn't it? Doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, I guess well. so. Well, you know, maybe not in Roman times, but <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, but, but, but purely World War II yeah. allied. Yeah. yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. Uh, well, this has been fantastic, James. Thanks. And so, you know, you're going for Casino next. My my yep. grandfather commanded the Duke of Wellington's no, um, at Anzio. Wow. There is a plaque on the uh, seafront at Anzio mentioning that fact wow that's incredible the dukes yeah yeah so and, and actually i think the duke of wellington was killed at salerno i've been to his grave yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe it was, yeah. um so yeah very much looking forward to that but savage thank storm you. is very striking cover it is yeah no, i'm very happy with that one well thanks very much gonna, james gonna best all yeah. right good to talk to you thanks for having me on again no probs cheerio Thank you very much for listening. Please share and subscribe. Next week, it's the Melee Massacre and a bonus on Goths v. Romans. But until then, thank you and good night. <laughs>